Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 tonight. We're not going to start out there, but that's where we'll, where we'll finish. For those of you who don't know, Renee and I have been married 26 years. We have a 22-year-old daughter, Emily, and a 20-year-old son, Jacob. And I think they asked me to do a sermon like this because I can speak from experience of all the times that we've blown it. And so maybe uh, we, we did a few things right and we did a few things wrong. And there are a few things that I wish I could uh, redo, but perhaps, uh, perhaps I can help you tonight uh, by God's Spirit to um, not make some of the same mistakes I've made. You know, when, when this series was planned on homewreckers, and I was asked to preach on raising children. Uh, initially, I was a little bit perplexed. Um, one of our sermons was on unforgiveness, and it's pretty easy to see how unforgiveness can be a homewrecker. And one of our sermons was on, you know, poor communication, and it's pretty easy to understand how poor communication in a marriage can be a homewrecker. Uh, but children, uh, the children, you know, Psalm 127 says something a little different. Psalm 27 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And then it goes on to say this, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So let me begin this evening by just saying we don't believe that children are homewreckers. Uh, we believe that they are a gift from the Lord but they are also a responsibility to those of us who, who have them. Uh, but they're gifts. Now the issue is that God gives us a lot of gifts, but we're responsible for how to steward or manage those gifts. For example, uh, the Bible says that, that God gives us wealth. God gives us our money. But we're responsible to manage or steward that money wisely. We can make poor financial decisions or we can make wise financial decisions. But we're going to be held accountable for how we manage our money. The Lord gives us spiritual gifts whereby we're to serve the Lord Jesus and his local body, the church. Those are gifts from the Lord. And yet we're responsible to use those gifts. We can either use those gifts to build up the body of Christ or, or we can sit on the, uh, on the pews and wait for someone else to do that which we ought to be doing with our spiritual gift. But we're responsible for how we manage uh, those gifts. Well, children are a gift from the Lord as well, but just like those other gifts, we're expected to, to steward them or oversee them wisely. The psalmist says they're like arrows. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full. But you know the thing about an arrow, an arrow is, is designed to shoot. An arrow does no good as long as it's in the quiver. An arrow is designed to be able to be shot out into the world to make a difference as it strikes a target. And so we are responsible as parents uh, to, uh, to prepare those arrows to be shot into the world to make a difference for Christ. So much of the time... It's not the children necessarily that are the homewreckers, but rather it's, it's primarily how we manage or, or, or steward the children that can negatively impact the home. And so I want to spend my time this evening by, by giving you what I believe to be two of the most important principles as it pertains to stewarding our children. And this is obviously not a comprehensive list. And this is obviously not something that any of us do perfectly. I, I, I wish I could have a mulligan on some things. 
Uh, but, but alas, all I can do is ask for forgiveness at times, right? But, but there are, it's how we carry out these principles, and they will, they will vary from family to family, and even within the same family, depending on the ages of the children. How I parent at the age of, of a three-year-old is going to look different than how you parent a 13-year-old. But the principles are the same. And so, I, again, I tell you these things as one who wishes he'd done a better job. The first one is very simply this. I say it's very simple. It's very simple to say. It's not as easy uh, to carry through. But the first one is simply this. Disciple and encourage your children. Disciple and encourage your children. You, you disciple them or you teach them through discipleship. I, I want to be very clear tonight. We believe that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, there, there are times when parents can do their very best to honor the Lord by how they raise their children, but it's no proof that that child will decide to follow Jesus. There are other times when parents can do a lousy job, and yet the, the Lord saves their children. Uh, my father had a lousy upbringing, and yet the Lord saved him at the age of 37. <clears throat> and it's a reminder uh, to us as parents that we have a role to play, but there are things out of our control. Because some things the Lord just has to do a work in their heart. But we know that as a general rule, uh, as a general rule of thumb, Proverbs 22, 6, <clears throat> excuse me, something happens when you get older, and that's once you get sick and you get a cough, it takes you like three years to get over it. <laughs> Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Now, different genres of Scripture are meant to be interpreted differently. We read uh, uh, prophetic literature differently than we read narratives. And, and one of the things about Proverbs is Proverbs aren't designed to be promises. Proverbs are understood to be general truths in life. So there are people who have a terrible upbringing who can become strong believers. And there are those who have a godly upbringing uh, who may not follow the Lord. But generally speaking, the general truth is that the Lord uses biblical instruction in the life of a child to bring them to saving faith in Christ. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do uh, as, you, as you parent, or even if you're not a parent, is to begin by praying for them. Well, that's, that, that, that's just uh, br brilliant, isn't it? That's just genius that I'm going to tell you to pray for your children. Listen, sometimes we underestimate the importance of what prayers can do. There's a phrase, you know, Chicago is notorious for corrupt politics, uh, an election fraud. And there's an old phrase as it pertains to elections in Chicago. Some people say that Al Capone uh, coined this phrase. It simply says, vote early and vote often. Well, we know that that was in corruption, uh, done in corruption in Chicago. But when it pertains to the souls of our children, we need to pray early, pray often. Don't underestimate the value of prayer. Those of you who know me well know uh, that, uh, that I didn't get married until the age of 33. And to be quite honest, I had no idea if I would ever marry or not. I just didn't know. I wanted to be married. I hadn't found the right person that I felt like the Lord wanted me to have. But at some point, I heard someone much more intelligent than me uh, teach about not waiting until you had children to start praying for them. And, and so my prayer became 
uh, as, I, as I accepted that challenge, my prayer became, God, if it is your will uh, for me to be a father one day, would you please save my children at an early age and, and use them uh, for, for your glory? And, and if you're here tonight and you're single, you, you, you may not be married. You may not know if you're going to be married, if you're going to have children. You may be married but not have children. I would encourage you now to begin to pray for your uh, potential children. Now, one of the areas our church is passionate about is making disciples, making more devoted, committed followers of Jesus. And that goes in the children's ministry up to the senior adult ministry. And, and the church has an important role to play in that process. But the reality is that kids today are being uh, inundated with things that, that some of us can't fathom uh, being inundated with when we were growing up. And they're constantly being exposed to the corruption of the world. And let me just say very bluntly that if the only discipleship your child receives is in the one or two hours per week that you bring them to this church, you are naive to think that they won't be overwhelmed by the ways of this world. Because they're being hammered with it every single day, whether it's in the schools or on social media or on television, they're being hammered with it. And as parents, we have a responsibility to teach our children. But the good news is this, God does not call us to do anything that he will not also equip us to do. And that includes teaching our children. If he's given you children, then he's given you the ability to train them up in the things of the Lord. And thankfully, there are more resources available, available to us today than at any other time in the history of the world, and most of it is at the click of a button. There, there, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, uh, and it doesn't require huge time commitments if we just make it a, a simple part of our daily lives. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 says that, that we're to teach them when we, when we sit, in your house, in the, sit, sit in the house, when we walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Uh, that, that covers, that's all-encompassing. In other words, it, it's, it's a way of life. Just as the Great Commission says, go into the world, we know that verse literally says, as you go. Well, as you go as a parent, as a family, uh, make that a part of your life. It, it, it doesn't have to be something that takes hours out of your day each day. Uh, it's something you do with your children as you go. I, I remember... I remember teaching Emily one of her first, her, maybe I think it was her first memory verse. And by the way, any things I, uh, that I share about my kids today have been approved um, at home before I bring them to your attention. Um, but one of her first memory verses, I believe the very first one, uh, I taught her while we were driving down Bardstown Road. And, you know, kids are like little sponges, man. When they're at a certain age, they can just remember everything. I, I wish, I, I, I don't remember ever having a memory like that. But, but they, they do. And we were driving down Bardstown Road, and I said, Emily, let's, let's, let's have a memory verse. And, and you know what? I taught her Ephesians 6.1. Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. <laughs> because I knew my daughter, and I, need, I knew that was a memory verse that she needed. Uh, that there are catechisms that you can use to teach them rich theological truths. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Commit, commit to doing those things. Commit to having a family devotion. And, and by the way, uh, what I would say to that is a brief family devotion. Don't bore your kids to death. It's a sin to make the Bible boring like that. It's, it is unrealistic to think that a four-year-old is going to sit there still and quiet for 25 minutes while you exegete a passage and, and have a 10-minute prayer. Don't make them dread it. Uh, it. It can be brief. 
family devotions for busy people, uh, as Pastor Gabriel would say. Uh, we're to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we're to teach them by both word and example what it means to be a Christ follower. You know, one of the things we would do as a family, we'd be driving down the road and we would see an ambulance pass or a fire truck pass. You know what that means? Somebody's having a bad day. And so we would pray for whoever that was while we were driving. Because I, we, we wanted our children to, say that, to see that everything's not about them. There are other people in the world who have real lives and who have real problems. And, and we believe that prayer changes things. We believe that God honors prayer. So we want to teach them through discipleship. We want to encourage them through kind words. We want to encourage them through kind words. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. I, I believe that this is something that requires great intentionality because I don't think it's something that most of us are very good at naturally. I don't think we're naturally good at encouraging our employees or our co-workers. I don't think most husbands and wives are particularly good of, at encouraging one another. And I don't think most of us as parents do a very good job of encouraging our children. And as I reflected on that this week as to why that is, I, I can only think of two reasons. Either, number one, we're so busy that we don't even think about it. And if we do think about it, we don't take the time to, to actually do it. Or, or number two that we've so developed a sense of, of entitlement that we're really not that grateful for, for the other people that God has placed in our lives. But, but we need to be an encouraging uh, people to our, to our children. They're being discouraged on every front. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Look for ways to encourage your children. Let them know that you believe in them and how much you love them. Listen, if my kids get bored of hearing me say that I love them, so be it. If that's the worst complaint they've got, I'm happy. But I'll tell you what, I don't think they do get tired of it. I don't think they get tired of it. So let them know that you believe in them and encourage them. One thing you might, you might want to consider is to encourage them more for character traits than you do for accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with, with uh, telling your child that you're proud of them for making straight A's. But I think it's healthier to tell them how proud you are of them for the work ethic that allowed them to get those A's. And, and there's a difference, you see. For some, it requires great discipline and a lot of hard work to make C's or B's in school. Whereas someone else who has the natural ability can scoot by and make straight A's and, and never have to crack open a book. Well, Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so there are occasions where we ought to encourage that C student more than we encourage the B student because the C student's actually working harder. Encourage them for the work ethic. And another reason is because if your encouragement to them is based solely on accomplishments, we raise the bar eventually to an unsustainable level. In other words, if your child feels like he or she always has to have the best grades, or if they always have to be the, the highest score on the team in order to please you, that's unsustainable because at some point you hit a brick wall. But, but they can always work hard. Uh, they can always strive to be people of, of honesty and compassion 
And those are more sustainable character traits. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't encourage them for the other good accomplishments, but focus more on the character traits and the accomplishments will take care of themselves. Now, if you'll encourage them at every opportunity, it's going to make the second point tonight a little easier and more effective, I believe. And that is, we're not only commanded to disciple, we're also commanded to discipline. And, and we often, I think, fail to remember this close correlation between disciple and discipline. Think about those two words and how similar they are. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us uh, about the Bible. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is what? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Notice what the Scripture does. It teaches us, it instructs us to believe the right things and to behave in the right way. And it corrects us and, rep and reproves us when we believe the wrong things or behave in the wrong ways. So discipleship and discipline are really just opposite sides of the same coin. And as important as it is that we teach our children the Word of God and how it applies to their lives, we're only doing half of our job as parents if we don't discipline for their disobedience, and they will disobey. They just will. Because our, and, and our world today just has this free-range parenting concept at times. Of just, let the, let, just let the kids grow up and believe whatever they want. Just let them kind of do their thing. Folks, that's not parenting. That's laziness. That is laziness. And, and we don't do that in any other area of life. We don't allow, allow our seven-year-old to decide whether or not they're going to go to school on a daily basis. We don't allow our five-year-old to decide uh, whether or not they're going to eat. Well, why should we allow them to, to decide whether or not they're going to go to church? Uh, the, the, the fan, they, they can't run the house. You see, that kind of mindset assumes that our children start out spiritually neutral in life, and then all we have to do is teach them intellectually and, and about the things of God, and they'll automatically make the right decisions. But we're not born spiritually neutral. We're born with a sin nature. And so without discipline, our natural inclination will be to sin. Years ago, Renee and I led a marriage retreat at a church in another state. And one of the sessions was on child rearing. And one of us made the comment that children are like little wedges. Uh, they will drive a wedge in between mom and dad if they're allowed. Sometimes it's unintentional, sometimes it's very intentional. Uh, they're, they're brilliant. And, and, and they will drive a wedge between mom and dad in order to divide and conquer. Uh, that's why we, would, we tried to teach our children, if, if you ask mom or dad to do something and they say no, you better not go ask the other parent. If mom says no, then the answer is no. And if you come and ask dad, and I find out you've already been turned down by mom, you're in double trouble, right? And so they will divide and conquer because they're little microcosms of us. And they're little sinners, and we love them with all of our heart, but we can't be blind to the reality of their sinfulness. Well, I just remember there was one lady in the audience that night, and, and apparently... Uh, she was, well, she, not apparently, she was very offended by what we said. And, and apparently she didn't believe in original sin because her little snowflake had never done anything wrong. And, and 
all I can say is either her child was an infant and she'd never been around another child or she was blind to the reality that, that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all born as sinners. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see an example of a father who may have taught his sons intellectually about God, but who failed miserably in the realm of discipline. It's a story of a man named Eli who was the priest at that time. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we're very familiar with the story uh, of, of a woman named Hannah who desperately wanted to have a child of her own, uh, but she had been unable to bear children. And so she promised the Lord that if he would give her a son, she, she would dedicate that child to the Lord's service for his entire life. And we know that that's exactly what happened. Uh, when the Lord blessed her with the birth of Samuel, and she took Samuel to the temple, and he lived there with Eli the priest. And we're familiar with that story. The part of the story we're less familiar with is that of Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, for those of you who like cartoons, that's not the Phineas and Ferb. It's a different Phineas, right? His sons are grown by the time that we read this passage. But I want you to notice how the Bible describes these two sons of Eli in verse 12 of chapter 2. God's Word says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Uh, the, the, their words, worthless men, it literally means sons of Belial. Belial was an, an ancient name for Satan. God describes them as sons of Satan. They were worthless, and then he proceeds to tell us why they were worthless. First of all, it tells us they were robbers of the Lord. Verses 13 through 17 tell us that they robbed the sacrifices. God had provided for the priest of that time by giving them a portion of the, of, the, of the animal sacrifices that were offered. But the passage tells us, if we were to read it, that, that essentially uh, the worthless sons reversed the process. Instead of giving the important parts to the Lord, uh, the important meat to the Lord first, they would take large portions for themselves. And, and the law said uh, that the fat of the animal sacrifice was to be burned on the altar as a gift to the Lord. But these sons would take the sacrifices from the people while they were still raw, which meant that they were taking the fat as well. And verse 16 tells us that if the person bringing the sacrifice wouldn't give it to them, they would take it by force. And so they were robbing from the Lord, but they were also adulterers. Verse 22 tells us they were committing sexual sins uh, with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Look, look down in chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. It says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. So the sins of Eli's sons were not only known to Eli, they were known to all the people around them. That's the kind of hypocrisy that brings harm to the name of the Lord, right? Because we, we understand that when the church is no different than the world, it shouldn't surprise us that the world wants nothing to do with the church. Eli knew his sons were wicked, but he didn't stop them. You say, well, he corrected them, he scolded them, and told them that what they were doing was not good, and that's true, he did. He did verbally correct them. But that's the end of the day. Uh, that's the end of the story. At the end of the day, he never followed through with them. He never said no to his sons. Listen, our children need to grow up understanding that they're not the center of the universe. 
They are important. They are loved by God. They are created in the image of God, but they are not the center of the universe. They need us to parent, and that means there will be times when they may not like us in the moment, and that is okay. Listen, if our egos are so sensitive that we're destroyed because our, our, our little children get mad at us for a couple of hours, we need help. We need help. It's okay that they don't always like you. Eli was more concerned about offending his sons than he was about offending God. Look what the Lord says to Eli in verse 29. He says this to Eli, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Notice what the Lord didn't say. The Lord didn't say to Eli, Eli, you don't love me at all. What it essentially teaches is that Eli made, a, made an idol out of his sons. He honored them more than he honored the Lord, and so the Lord brought judgment. Look, look over in chapter 13, verse 13. God says there, For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not restrain them. He did not restrain them. He, Eli knew that they did not love God. Now look, guys, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics about child-rearing. It, it, it doesn't tell us exactly how or when to, uh, to discipline every child as universal truths. But it does give us parameters uh, to fall uh, within. And so let me just finish tonight by offering some general principles about discipline in the home. And the first one is this. Discipline should be appropriate. Let me just say that. Discipline should be appropriate. And what I mean by that is that we're to discipline appropriately as it pertains to the degree of discipline and the type of discipline. It's inappropriate to not discipline your children, but it's also inappropriate to discipline your children in an abusive way. It's not okay to yell and scream at your children. It's not okay to, to, to physically abuse your children by doing permanent damage to them. And so, and so it, it should go without saying, but let's just say it. Okay, and so it's inappropriate to discipline in that way. But the type of discipline is going to vary based on the level of infraction. For, for example, Renee and I used different degrees of discipline based on what our kids had done. Sometimes we'd make them go into timeout. Sometimes we'd make Emily go stand with her nose in the corner, and we would give a, put a timer, and, and we would say, stand there for 60 seconds, and inevitably she would stand there for 55 seconds and then turn around. And it's like, no, 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 back, back to it again. You're, you're going to be there for a, for a full minute. Sometimes we would take away certain privileges. Certain, sometimes we would send them to timeout. We did, and when they were young, we would spank them. And we would spank them at times. Proverbs 13, 24 says this. Whoever spares the rod to what? No, it doesn't say spoils the child. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, so let me just say, I don't believe that spanking, uh, all spanking is inherently abusive because otherwise then I think we would say that the Bible is endorsing abuse and I don't believe that's the case at all. But at the same time, excessive spanking is one way in which a child can be abused and it's never acceptable. When we're, when we're unnecessarily harsh uh, with our actions or with our words, that does not help our children. That harms our children. It discourages them. And just remember, the, the goal of, of discipline is to correct. 
It's to correct, not to punish or, or destroy. Uh, that's what Ephesians 6.4 warns us about when it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is not an approval to be abusive or unnecessarily harsh with your child. Nor do I believe that it's saying that's the only legitimate form of discipline. Uh, it's saying that if you love your child, you will lovingly discipline them because our general disposition as human beings is to get away with whatever we can get away with and children have to be taught that there are consequences to sin. And so we did at times spank our children, but we didn't spank them for everything they did wrong. And, and when we did do that, we were very careful and we were under full control. Listen, if you're spanking your child because, because you can't control your temper, that's not the right reason. That's not the right reason. You should be under complete control. This is, again, a correction out of love, not a punishment out of, out of anger. We didn't use belts to them, on them. We didn't bruise them. Uh, but we did paddle them on their bottoms because we wanted to make an impression. Uh, Hebrews 12.5 says that God disciplines those he loves. God loves us enough to discipline us when we sin because he wants what is best for us and the same should be for us as parents as well. Now, I'm not saying that every parent uh, has to do that because there are some, uh, we have people who are fostering to adopt, for example, they have to abide by the laws. And so I'm not suggesting that everyone has to do that the same way. I am saying that whatever appropriate form of discipline you use, it needs to have a bite to it. In other words, if you're going to send your kid to time out in their bedroom, but they're allowed to play video games while they're in their, in their bedroom, uh, that's not going to bring about change. It just won't. Or if all you ever do is warn your child time after time after time and there are never any real consequences, well, talk is cheap. Just ask Eli. Regardless of the methods, this is what I want to get a, 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 across. The most serious discipline should be reserved for the most serious offenses. Uh, generally blatant disobedience, blatant disrespect toward us or others. When we first had uh, Emily and she began to grow, we started having conversations about when is it appropriate to begin to, to discipline. We didn't want to discipline her for something that uh, if she was too young to understand why she was being disciplined. Well, one night when she was about two years old, terrible twos, which our pediatrician once told us the terrible twos really begin at terrible 18 months, but it just doesn't sound as good. Uh, when she's about two years old, she walks over. She's watching us. She walks over in the bathroom and lays her hand on the toilet paper holder. And she looks at us and smiles. Real big grin for a two-year-old. And her mother knew what she was about to do, and she, her mother looked at her very sternly and said, Emily, don't do it. Emily looked at the toilet paper. Emily looked at us and smiled. Emily turned around to the toilet paper and phew, all over the floor. And that's when Renee and I knew it's time to begin the discipline. She understands exactly what we told her not to do, and she chose to, to, to ignore it. Before we started homeschooling, both of our kids were in daycare at the hospital where, where Renee works. And one day, Renee corrected Emily at home for something. And, and uh, Emily kind of looked at her. She's four or five. She kind of puts her hand on her hip and said, whatever. Next day, Emily went back to daycare and she told her teacher, yesterday I said whatever to my mommy. I'm not ever going to say whatever again. <laughs> And to my knowledge, she hasn't. 
Guys, it's important that they understand that certain behavior will just not be tolerated. It's just not going to be tolerated. I remember the four of us standing in line. We were visiting this big mouse down in Florida. And we were standing in line waiting to order our food at, at Magic Kingdom. And there was another family standing in the line next to us. And, and our kids were probably six or seven at the time. And in the next line was this husband and wife and a little boy who was probably five or six years old himself. And for whatever reason, he was mad at mommy. And he was having a temper tantrum. And we stood there and watched while he cried and beat his mother in the knees. Because that was his height level. He stood there crying and beating her time after time after time with his fist while the father stood there like an idiot completely ignoring this little boy. And, and the, only, the only humorous part of the story was watching our children because our kids would look at this little boy and then they'd turn around and look at us. And then they looked at this little boy and then they turned around and looked at us. And, and it was almost as if they were so surprised that the parents were allowing this that they were waiting for me to have an intervention. And, and, and if, I, if I recall, when we sat down, our kids told us what they thought that little boy needed. And, and what I shared with them was that the primary problem was not the little boy. Primary problem was lazy parents, especially a father who would allow his child to so disrespect his own wife. That's the problem. And so we would discipline for those types of things, but we didn't discipline because they spilled their drink. They're children. They're, they're not going to be perfect. Uh, they have accidents. Sometimes they do the wrong thing because they don't understand the instructions. Sometimes they cry because they're tired. When our son was little, he would sometimes get very upset about the smallest of things and just have meltdowns. And, and I just confess to you that it would frustrate me to no end because I just thought he was being whiny. I, I don't think I ever punished him. I didn't yell him. I didn't yell at our children. But I, I, I'll just confess to you, I, I can have a tone of voice that is harsh even without ever raising my voice. And, and that's a struggle that I have to deal with. And, and one day we noticed that when we gave him something to eat, Within a couple of minutes, he had completely calmed down and was absolutely fine. And we realized that he didn't necessarily feel hungry and he didn't know how to describe it, but his body needed food. And, and I felt like a wretch. But from that time on, when we would notice he was becoming upset, we would just say, hey, we're not going to talk about this issue until you eat. Well, once he ate, we didn't have to talk about the issue. The issue went away. Because he was fine. And so we should discipline appropriately. And part of that is discipline for things worthy of discipline, but not sweating the small stuff. Let me say very quickly, dis discipline should be effective. That's the second component. Discipline should be effective. I, I think this has several components. And I'm going to rush through because I know everybody's in the mood for cookies. All right. First, for it to be effective, it needs to be timely. When a child is in their toddler years, don't say, wait till your daddy gets home. By the time dad gets home, the child doesn't even remember. He's not intellectually capable of remembering what he's being punished for at that point. Uh, they'll, they, they, they won't be able to connect the punishment to what they did wrong. So if at all possible, the discipline should be immediate. A second uh, part of that is that, it, that it's understanding your child's personality and stage of life. In other words, not all children require the same kind of discipline because they have different personalities. Some children, you can just look at them and they'll cry. 
You know, and other children are more strong-willed. And, and by the way, as parents, our goal is not to break that strong will because strong will can be effective uh, when they get a little older and they begin to undergo peer pressure. Uh, strong-willed kids tend to be more resolved uh, to that peer pressure. They don't give in because they don't care what other people think. So our goal is not to break their strong will. Uh, our, our goal is to bend it in the right direction. And so uh, that, that is a different age. Uh, other types of discipline maybe become more or less effective. And you have to find that out. That, that's the moving pieces that keep us uh, hopping as parents. But, but here's the other key. The third requirement for effective discipline is you have to start when they're little. When we think about Eli and his sons, somebody might say, well, Eli rebuked his sons, but they were grown. What else could he do? Well, for starters, he could have removed them from their responsibilities. But I think it goes deeper than that. Because from all indications, Eli did not correct his sons as adults because he didn't correct them as children. And many times, parents barely discipline at all when the child is little. And then as they see the child getting out of control, then they want to try to rein it in by, by having discipline. And, and, and the opposite should be true. Generally, discipline will need to be more frequent when they're small. You know, Renee and I planted a tree in our yard about two or three months ago. You know what we did? We tied a stake to that tree. Why? Because that tree is little. It's frail, and that stake helps that tree to grow tall and straight and strong. And, and so, so when the tree grows and gets stronger, we can remove that stake. And that, that's similar to the discipline in the life of a child. Third thing is this. Discipline should be consistent. If it's too harsh uh, and rigid is one way in which we exas uh, exasperate our children, in being inconsistent is another way. There's nothing that will frustrate your children more than moving the goalpost. There should be clear, consistent expectations so they never have to wonder what's acceptable or unacceptable because it doesn't depend on what mood dad's in. And if you discipline based on your mood, you're going to discipline today for something that you let slide yesterday. And children have to know that your discipline is based on their actions and not on your mood. Teach them, for example, uh, that you expect first-time obedience. Listen, delayed obedience is disobedience. Teach them, teach them to, to, to respond the first time. If you don't set an expectation of obedience after the first instruction, then the child has no idea as to where the, the boundaries are. Will they get two warnings? Will they get three warnings? Will they get 12 warnings? Make it simple for them. Give them instructions. Make sure they understand the instructions and then hold them accountable. Don't confuse them by being lazy. And finally, you know, if both mom and dad are in the home, being consistent in your discipline is harder if the parents aren't on the same page. That's why that's a topic that should be covered in premarital counseling, right? Because sometimes I might have my, my philosophy of, of discipline based on how I was raised. I assume my wife has the same philosophy. And then after we get married, we discover when we have children, oh, we, 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 we parent a little different. And so if only one parent, for example, is the disciplinarian, that parent becomes the enemy of the state, right? And so you don't want parents uh, to, to have to be the good guy, bad guy. You want to have a united front. Last thing I want to say tonight, and we'll close, discipline should be gospel-focused. should be gospel-focused. I told you that the first verse I taught our kids was Ephesians 6, 1, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, one of the most important things to them to understand is that last phrase, in the Lord. 
We need to help them to understand that when they disobey you, they're disobeying God. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not God. But I am God's representative to my child. And, and, and they learn a lot about God by what they see in me. They either learn about God correctly or incorrectly. And so when you lovingly discipline, you teach them about the character of God. If you don't discipline or you're inconsistent or you're overly harsh in your discipline, you're misrepresenting God. Remember, the goal is not just to disciple, nor is it to discipline. It's to do both, and sometimes those are simultaneous. And so whatever appropriate form of discipline you're using at the time, explain to them that they're not being just dis, uh, dis, uh, disobedient to you, but they're also being disobedient to the Lord. And infuse your discipline with the gospel. Remind them that God loves them and that you love them, and that means wanting the best for them, and that's why you discipline. I was reading an article on Focus on the Family recently, and it, re it referenced a research study where juvenile delinquents were interviewed, and almost all of them said that the lack of discipline in their home led them to believe that their parents did not love them. When we would have to discipline our kids, after whatever form of discipline was necessary, we would usually try to hug them and remind them that we loved them no matter what. No matter what. Because don't discipline out of, out, out, because you because you've lost your, your temper and you've you lost your cool. That misrepresents God. It's interesting. Our kids are 22 and 20 now. The other night I was talking to Emily and I told her my topic for tonight. And I asked her if there was anything we did, good or bad, that really stood out to her. And she brought up that very point. She said it was important to her that we explained our love for them. And then she said this. She said, I didn't always like the fact that you wanted to hug me after, after I was in trouble. Because I really wasn't in the mood to be hugged at that point. But as I started to get older looking back, I really grew to appreciate that. Because even if I was in trouble, I never had to question whether you love me. That's how God's love is. God is just, but God is also merciful. And that's a challenge for us as parents. We want to be just, but we also want to show grace whenever possible. And when we mess up, and we will, it's important that our kids see that we need grace too. And that's why it's important that we be willing to apologize to them and ask their forgiveness when we're wrong. And we will be wrong. And our kids know when we're wrong. And they really appreciate knowing that we know when we're wrong. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but guys, if we would just work on those two things, I believe the Lord would honor that. Let's pray together tonight. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of children. Thank you that the halls of this church, uh, hallways are full of, of children running and playing and laughing. Lord, you've given us a, a monumental task, and yet at the same time, we, um, we often fail. So Lord, help us. Give us your grace and your mercy. Fill us with your spirit so that we discipline the way you discipline us. And that is as, as one who loves us unconditionally. Help us to disciple and train our children. And, and Holy Spirit, would you, would you do in our children that which neither they nor we can do in them? Would you save them and use them for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.